Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 8 of True Blue True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hello everyone, I'm good. Good, good. It's been a big week for me. I'm a little weary tonight, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, a bit. Um, things are getting weird and it's not quite 8 o'clock so I'd say tired might be an understatement. <laughs> yes, the family's been a little under the weather. I've started a new job as I mentioned, using public transport again, which is uh, makes you appreciate your own hygiene, that's for sure. <laughs> How spoiled you might be. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. It's an adjustment, but it's not for too long. So a couple of quick notes about the show. True Blue True Crime is a weekly podcast covering Australian criminal cases. We release additional exclusive content to our Patreon supporters on a weekly to fortnightly basis. And don't forget you can support the show on Patreon at any time. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening on. Patreon is super easy. You can use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive Patreon content, access to Q&As, behind the scenes, blooper reels, we tease the next show in our Patreon episodes, and you'll get 10% off in our merch store when we get that up and running. We understand that everyone can't get behind us on that front. That's cool. Thanks for listening to the regular episodes and feel free to spread the love in other ways. You can tell friends and work colleagues. You can join our Facebook discussion group, follow us on Instagram or share the podcast on social media in any crime groups or forums you might be a member of. And if you're up for it, please give us a five-star review and rating on iTunes or whatever app you use. We read them out and we definitely text each other as soon as we get them as well. So it really means a lot to us. It does, yes. Chloe, today we're talking about a beautiful and vibrant young woman who was taken from this earth far too soon by a man who'd been committing vile acts for far too long. This case was beyond huge when it occurred in Melbourne just over six short years ago now. The crime would shake the city to its core and shatter the future of a beautiful young couple and a loving family. It's unfortunate in a way that we have to discuss so many bad things today when this wonderful soul only did good in the world, but that's true crime, I suppose. And it's equally unfortunate that we have to talk at all about the despicable recidivist rapist who killed her. 
and if you believe the police, which we do, would have gone on to kill many more bright souls had he not been caught. January 2014, Melbourne, Victoria. On the website of the Human Headline, a blog post read, I am electing to go to jail for 50 days to protest against a court system which sees rapists and murderers let out on parole to rape and kill again. I'm going to draw attention to all the suspended sentences for crimes of violence and child pornographers and those obscenely short jail terms for king hit killers. I also hope the media attention from my arrest and jailing will draw attention to my campaign for a national register of convicted sex offenders. Already 30,000 of you have signed it, and if my drastic personal action draws attention to judges and magistrates being way out of touch with community expectations and your safety, then every day behind bars will be worth it. These words were written by Senator Darren Hinch prior to his 50-day incarceration for breaching a suppression order restricting the media from reporting information about the man alleged to have murdered Jill Maher, specifically his criminal history, as to not prejudice the impending trial. Ironically, Hinch would spend the first two weeks of his jail term in the same prison on the same floor as Jill Maher's killer. And Hinch would never say his name. He'd just refer to him by the acronym J.M.K. Jill Maher was born Gillian McKeown on the 30th of October 1982. She was the eldest of two children to Edith and George McKeown. She had a younger brother named Michael. The family lived in Ireland in a small village named Termenfecken, which was north of Drogheda in County Louth, about 50 kilometres north of Dublin. That's a city I very much enjoyed when I visited there many years ago. But this village was said to be a small and affordable area at the time. As a youngster, Jill was described as clumsy but very lovable. Her mum called her goofy with class, as I recall. She was very vibrant and full of life, and her family loved her to bits. Jill was always popular at school, and she made friends very easily with her exuberant personality. In 1990, when Jill was around eight years old, the family moved to Perth in Western Australia. George had taken a job with an accounting firm to further his career, so the move followed this decision. And it was a big decision, moving your entire family across the globe like that. But Jill took to it, like she did most things, actively engaging in the new lifestyle. She really enjoyed the Australian culture, you might say. It's a very laid-back way of living here, so this worked in well with Jill's personality. She attended Bull Creek Primary School and Rossmoyne High School, and within four years, the whole family would obtain Australian citizenship. As much as they enjoyed it in Australia, they did end up returning to Ireland for another stretch when Jill was around 12 years old, so about four years after their move to Perth. 
They'd remain back in Ireland for some time after this, where Jill would complete her studies. She attended the Drogheda Grammar School and St Oliver's Community College, and she'd eventually graduate from the University College Dublin with an arts degree. She worked part-time during this period in her life. She had a job uh, at the campus bar at one stage, and she also worked at the designer fashion store Brown Thomas on Dublin's Grafton Street. Jill was also involved in the drama society while at college, and this would appear to be a natural instinct of Jill's. I think you can see that in her when researching her background. She had a passion for the theatre of life, the whole world's a stage and all that. She later developed a passion for comedy writing, a direction she wanted to take in her career. It was around this time in her life at college in Ireland that Jill met Tom Marr. They met through mutual friends and they really clicked right away. Within a few months, the pair were officially dating, you could say. Jill would then get a job at the National Broadcasters RTE in Dublin, and in 2008, her and Tom would get married. A short time later, the pair would take a working holiday to Melbourne in Australia, with some friends of theirs coming along as well, and they both absolutely loved it here. Jill loved shopping, which Melbourne has plenty of, but it's also a very vibrant and eclectic city with loads of cafes and bars. It certainly has a trendy kind of vibe, especially when you get into the fringe suburbs of the CBD, areas like Collingwood, Carlton, Richmond and Brunswick. Jill and Tom loved it so much, they decided to stay, and they moved to the suburb of Brunswick thereafter. Jill's folks had moved back to Perth in WA by this time, so the family was very much intending to set up camp in Australia for good. As we said before, Brunswick was back then and still is to this day very much a a trendy or hipster kind of place. It's an older part of the broader Melbourne city, lots of old buildings with character and it's vibrant in the arts, live music venues, bars, cafes, restaurants, etc. And running down its middle is the busy Sydney Road, which is not connected to the city of Sydney in New South Wales, but it's a long shopping strip that has trams running up and down on a regular basis. The key point is that it's a bustling kind of area. Jill and Tom moved into a relatively modern apartment by the area standards and by all accounts they were good, quiet tenants and they were enjoying their new life. They were described as a loving couple. That's not to say it was all peaches and cream for Jill and Tom all the time. They did separate for a few months in early 2012 at a time when they were both dealing with stress in their work and personal lives but got back together shortly thereafter and apparently both benefited from the time apart. They said it made their relationship stronger. They went on to discuss buying a house and starting a family in the time after this. And this has happened to many of us in relationships, and it can often go the other way, but sometimes it can be very healthy to gain some perspective and really see what you had together, and that certainly seemed to be the case for Jill and Tom. In January 2012, Jill had started working at the ABC Radio as a unit coordinator, and she quickly became a fixture there, a sort of a go-to person I heard her described as. She made friends with her colleagues very quickly and easily, and as we said earlier, she had that infectious, buoyant sort of personality that seemed to bring people in. So in August 2012, not long after her and Tom had rekindled things, Jill set off to Ireland for a short trip. But that trip was cut even shorter when she received news that her dad, George, had suffered a stroke. So Jill came back to Perth promptly to visit her dad and commented that he needed to hang around a while longer so he could become a grandfather to her and Tom's future children. 
So after her visit in Perth, Jill flew back to Melbourne and on Monday, September 17, she went back to work at the ABC. And this was a big, stressful week for Jill, with all the travel she'd just done, no doubt taking a physical toll, but an emotional toll as well from her father's ill health. She would have undoubtedly been uh, pretty tired, I would think. So this brings us to Friday the 21st of September. After a long first week back at work, Jill went with a colleague named Sky for a few drinks at the nearby Ludlow Formation Bar. They had a pair of ciders, and just after 7.30pm, Jill left for a party in Chinatown at a place called the Fad Gallery. It was the birthday party of another work colleague, and she stayed for about an hour and a half before her and three other colleagues, Tom Wright, Joe Church and Mark Veer, decided to leave. They took a taxi back to Brunswick, where they went to the Brunswick Green for a few more drinks. Jill messaged her husband Tom at this time, telling him where she was, and inviting him out for a drink. But Tom had fallen asleep on the couch and didn't get her message. The four work colleagues stayed until close. Then Jill and Tom Wright, who I'm going to refer to as TW, as to not confuse him with Jill's husband Tom, Jill and TW left and went to bar etiquette down the roadways. And this place has since closed, but TW was in good spirits that evening because he and his partner were celebrating the arrival of their second child, or soon-to-be arrival, Jill was talking about her career that night, particularly her desire to get into comedy writing in the future, as you mentioned earlier, Chloe. So the pair finished up at Bar Etiquette at closing time, which was around 1.30am. Jill and TW moseyed out onto Sydney Road, and he offered to get Jill a taxi and share one on the way home or to walk her home. But it was only 800 metres back to Jill's place, and she'd done that walk many times before. So she didn't want to trouble her colleague, uh, and that was that. They kind of left it at that. TW caught a cab, and Jill walked off down Sydney Road toward her home. Now, Chloe, it's worth pointing out how bustling and well-lit Sydney Road is. We mentioned it before, but even at this early time of the morning, it shouldn't really matter, really, if it was a dark car park or off the beaten path. But it's worth pointing out that there were people walking past her as she went, not hordes of people, but it was well lit. There were taxis, other vehicles and people in the area. CCTV showed Jill stopping to have a brief chat and bum a cigarette off a few people. She even gave one a hug it looked like, ever the friendly type. It was reported this was three women, but to us it looked like two women and a male on footage, but that's just really minor details. A couple of people would later come forward saying they'd spotted Jill, one bloke in a red top who passed her on foot around this time while going to grab a kebab, and another driving past who considered offering her a lift but decided against it at the last minute. Jill phoned her brother Michael shortly after this to check in on how their father was going, but it was a bad line and their conversation was cut short. Jill only interacted with one other person after this call, and that was her killer. But at this time, as far as anyone close to Jill was aware, she was just missing at this point, but that was cause for serious concern in her husband Tom and family's eyes. Tom had woken from his sleep on the couch and he had SMS Jill, but had received no reply. He then tried calling her over and over again and still had no response. Jill's brother Michael had also tried to call her back, but got a similar lack of response that Tom had. 
At around 5am when Jill hadn't returned home, Tom went searching for her, walking back down Sydney Road from their apartment along the route he thought she would have taken home, but he had no luck. Tom then messaged Sky, Jill's work colleague who she'd gone for drinks with earlier in the night, and Sky hadn't heard from Jill either, and she too, like Tom, was very concerned for her welfare at this point. Tom contacted more friends throughout the day and continued looking for Jill, but when no sign of her showed up, the alarm bells started to seriously ring, and Tom contacted the police very quickly. To the police, this initially seemed like somewhat a familiar story. Someone's had a boozy night out and inadvertently ended up crashing at a friend's place, and they would likely turn up at some point. So the initial response probably lacked some urgency, which you can understand in a sense, but I think once Saturday night hit and Jill hadn't surfaced and no one had heard from her, the police search really went into hyperdrive. So the areas around where Jill was last seen had already been searched during the day. On the Saturday, hospitals had been called and the police had first checked the CCTV on Lux Way, where the Mars lived, and Jill wasn't on that footage. Brunswick would be searched high and low after this, Rooftops and venues were swept by the police and the media too would traipse up and down Sydney Road going into venues and asking questions. The media frenzy would really spark up around this time as would the community concern for Jill. By Sunday it was all over national news. Tom Ma was the initial focus because it's always the husband who did it right but he was scrutinised I think it's fair to say and social media would blow up in not only a campaign to find Jill, but to condemn Tom as being involved. So just as it can do a lot of good, it can be very harmful in this way also. Tom would be judged as being too emotional in his speaking with the media and then at other times not emotional enough. So um, doing lots of postering and Facebook campaigning, Twittering, all that stuff, but uh, we just want to get... uh, I'm doing loads and loads of interviews and uh, media stuff just... I just want to get as much out there as possible. You know, it's it's Friday night in, in Sydney Road. It's you know it's busy. People have to have seen something, or you know, somebody has to have seen Jill at some stage. Um, so I just want people to kind of really think if they've seen anything at all uh, to contact the police. But while the media storm was blowing through Brunswick and the broader Victorian community, police were working away in the background, trying to piece together what had happened to Jill. So now we come to a few important players in this investigation, and there were many people involved in different aspects of this, but for the sake of simplicity, while still wanting to highlight the investigative aspect from the police's point of view, we'll limit it to the lead detectives in this case, Detective Senior Sergeant Dave Butler and Detective Sergeant Paul Rowe. So this pair led the investigation, and they'd be supported at times throughout by their team leader in the Homicide Squad, a man we all know as the good cop and who the media refers to as our country's greatest detective, Detective Senior Sergeant Ron Idles. So Roe, Butler and co are piecing together CCTV on Sydney Road at this time, weaving all these little snippets of footage together to form a timeline of Jill's movements after leaving bar etiquette. Jill's phone is dead by this time and police confirm she hasn't accessed her bank accounts. By Sunday morning, Detectives Butler and Rowe are treating this as a suspicious missing persons case. Detective Idles is brought into the fold at this time via telephone. He was away on a well-deserved break at his caravan. 
So he's discussing the steps taken with Butler and Rowe as the investigation unfolds. Meanwhile, Tom Maher is reaching out over Facebook to friends for help and speaking with the media, hoping for Jill's safe return. Butler and Rowe explain to Tom that they work from the family outwards, meaning there will be an intensified spotlight on him for the time being, because by Monday, it becomes very likely that Jill has fallen victim of foul play. Jill's handbag was found on Monday morning in a laneway off Hope Street in Brunswick, and it wasn't there when the area was searched on Saturday. So this is a major problem. How did the bag get there? There was nothing missing from the bag except for Jill's phone. Police learnt it had been picked up Saturday morning by a local shopkeeper, and this person had taken the bag into his shop to rifle through it for any valuables. The shopkeeper didn't report it until speaking with police days later. This guy got a call from his daughter about Jill's disappearance, with it being plastered all over the news. So he put the bag back without mentioning anything to anyone. But this had turned into something much more serious than this opportunistic shopkeeper had bargained for. This guy was eliminated pretty quickly of having any involvement in Jill's disappearance. And that left the public media storm continuing to hypothesise on Tom Maher's involvement. The media's focus on Tom was described by the police as being the safer option. The husband did it theory, as you said, Chloe, isn't as scary to the broader public as having a madman or a serial killer or something like that on the loose. So the police have to focus on Tom to begin with. But as Ron Idle said, they do that not to the detriment of other information coming in. Tom is extremely cooperative with police. There is a thorough forensic sweep of their apartment and eventually Tom is completely eliminated when his account is clearly corroborated. Everything Tom says checks out. The times he's spotted walking down Sydney Road in the morning searching for her, pings on his phone suggesting he wasn't with Jill, going by her last phone pings. But Detectives Butler and Rowe were growing very concerned at this stage. Not only had the media storm kicked up a notch, leaving them with many factors to juggle, but forensics from a search of the laneway off Hope Street had discovered a few things. They discovered a lead pencil bearing the ABC logo, some cigarettes, and they'd formed the opinion that some nearby flattened turf possibly reflected a rape crime scene. Now, some of this had been established in the earlier search on Saturday, But now with the discovery of Jill's handbag and the increasing CCTV footage they were knitting together, a clearer picture of what may have happened to Jill was starting to form before the detectives' eyes. On the Tuesday, day four of the investigation, detectives are provided footage from a CCTV camera inside a local retail store called the Duchess Boutique. This place sold wedding dresses and clothing for other formal occasions. In this footage from the store, which had a restricted field of vision out onto the street through the shop's entry, Jill and a guy in a blue hoodie were seen to be talking. She stopped and seemed hesitant in conversing with him, and he seemed persistent. She had her mobile phone handy, and this guy in the blue hoodie and light blue pants, to me they look like trackies with buttons up the side, but they could have been jeans, he'd also be seen on the CCTV walking up and down Sydney Road for a few minutes before this, seemingly in a hurry, in an erratic fashion or heightened state anyway. He wasn't just sashaying to a kebab shop, that's for sure. And this was around 1.43am, so very close to when Jill had departed bar etiquette in the company of her friend. 
The detectives immediately thought that there was something wrong here. Jill's body language was way off. Reluctant was the word I think they used. And it became evident that this guy was either the last person who saw her or was involved in what was likely at this time to be Jill's demise. So this guy's become the number one suspect at this point. But police were unsure if they should release this CCTV footage. And I think that was because if Jill was alive, releasing this could tip the perpetrator over the edge to harm her or it could cause him to flee, destroy evidence or even self-harm. But to our understanding, there was fervent discussion about this and because the police thought she was likely dead by this point, they did release the footage. There was another guy in this CCTV footage, well, reports of just one other guy anyway. If you watch the footage, there actually seems to be a few people who passed Jill. But upon releasing the footage, police are contacted by the bloke wearing the red top who passed Jill, and he's cleared quickly. This dude was ambling down Sydney Road, he was a local, and uh, he was going to get a kebab. But while he didn't get a good look at Jill or the guy in the blue hoodie, this guy was adamant that Jill never passed the kebab shop just a short ways down Sydney Road because he sat in the front window gazing out onto the street and he said he would have recalled if she'd been by, but she hadn't. So the police had really narrowed down the window of time and location in which Jill had likely gone missing. And when this guy in the blue hoodie doesn't come forward, he once again is looking pretty sus. There was also numerous tips getting called in after the footage was released of other reported abductions by a man of similar appearance in the surrounding areas in the days and weeks prior to this. But we mentioned the phone pings earlier, and this type of work was simmering away in the background as all of this CCTV footage was released and the tips started coming in. And this footage is is quite famous, but contrary to popular belief, it wasn't the CCTV that identified the man in the blue hoodie. Jill's phone records show that sometime after her last sighting on the CCTV, she was all of a sudden travelling in a vehicle away from Brunswick, northwest out onto the Tullamarine Freeway towards a rural area where it eventually stopped in Gisborne South. This is probably a 45-minute drive at that time of morning. So the police began utilising the cameras on CityLink, the uh, toll booths along this route, and they used the snapshots from the cameras to run registration numbers. A CityLink transaction on the Moreland Road gantry matched up with Jill's phone ping at the same location at the same time. This car, a white Holden Astra with the registration UAJ350, led them to a man named Adrian Bailey. On Wednesday, day five of the investigation, surveillance team known as The Dogs are at Bailey's apartment in Coburg, which is another small suburb on the fringe of Melbourne's CBD, in the same northerly direction as Brunswick, but about five kilometres further past it. The purpose of deploying the dogs was to see if Bailey was acting suspicious and to ensure if he was the offender that he wouldn't strike again. They organised a wiretap on Bailey's phone and began tracking his mobile phone history with respect to its movements in the preceding weeks. And as the dogs were observing Bailey, back at police's St Kilda Road HQ, the unbelievable criminal history of this guy would unfold before the detectives' very eyes. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Adrian Ernest Bailey was born with the name Adrian Ernest Matthew Edwards on the 14th of July 1971. He was the eldest of four children to Ernest and Christine Edwards. He'd claim later in life he was sexually abused when he was younger, which a lot of sexual offenders tend to claim. How much stock you put in that is up to you. But we do know for sure, as a youngster, he was prone to outbursts of anger. He'd fire up very easily. Bailey had a real problem keeping his temper under control, and it's probably because of this he'd move out of home at a very early age. He'd move to a suburb called Wurrialik, which is in the Yarra Valley in Victoria, maybe an hour and a half or a bit less on a good run east from Melbourne CBD. And it's pretty close to home for us, Chloe. Yeah. In 1990, when Bailey was just 18, he'd marry his girlfriend Debbie and they'd move into a weatherboard house in Allen Grove, Wurrialik, and they'd have a child that same year. Also that same year, Bailey would show the first glimpse of the serial sexual predator he'd become when he sexually assaulted a 16-year-old girl. So he'd lured this girl into his home under the pretense of having her help him organise a surprise party for his sister. But this was a lie. Bailey raped her in the bed he shared with his wife. This girl would go to the police and Bailey was charged days later. He'd vigorously deny the allegation and inevitably be released on bail pending his trial. But Bailey wasn't stopped in his tracks after this. He kept going. On the 30th of August, just a few weeks later, he sexually assaulted a 17-year-old girl who was walking home from the bus stop. He groped her at first, then poked her in the eyes, and then he tried to rape her, but he couldn't for whatever reason, her fighting him off or just failure on his part. He threatened to kill her if she told anyone about the attack and said to her that he wasn't stupid, he'd leave no evidence and no one would believe her word against his anyway. But this girl did go to the police and positively identified Bailey. So this creeps on the prowl, two serious allegations of rape and attempted rape here and he had denied both but was bailed to appear in court once again. And again, Bailey would be at it only weeks later, in October of 1990. So this is all in the same year. Married, child on the way, and a series of sexual assaults to boot. On what was reported to be the Wurrialic to Hillsville Road, which I'm assuming is the Hillsville Rup Road, Chloe, as that's really the only road connecting the two areas, but probably wasn't reported that way because it's a pain in the backside to pronounce, He picked up a hitchhiker on this road with the promise of a lift, but drove her to a remote location and attempted to force oral sex upon her. Now, this woman escaped, reported and identified Bailey, and he denied any involvement once again. 
But in 1991, he'd front the county court and give a limited confession of sorts, express some form of remorse and gave the reasoning for his offending as being depressed and suffering anxiety. But the judge isn't really buying this, apparently seeing through Bailey's remorse as being mostly concerned with himself and his own feelings, which have probably caused the depression and anxiety because he'd been caught. Even so, Bailey is given just five years with a minimum of three due to the alleged prospect of rehabilitation he presented. But this guy would be a far cry from being rehabilitated. But he's no moron. Bailey plays the game and gets out in just over two years. In 1995 now, Bailey bounces around many locations in Melbourne's Outer East. Ringwood, Ringwood East, Croydon. He also dates many women during this time and fathers another three children by the year 2000. So he seemingly had a period of downtime from his sexual offending for a short time here, and he was described during this time as being a model tenant, always kept his head down, kept things neat and tidy, including his appearance, he went to the gym, but all of this was a facade and would eventually come down. In the year 2000, he would change his surname from Edwards to Bailey, and this was an obvious move to hide his past offending. It's not documented why he chose Bailey, but probably heard it someplace and just thought it sounded regular and natural enough. And it was shortly after this, between 2000 and 2001, that his sexual offending would really ramp up to an all-new level in a series of calculated, targeted attacks on sex workers in Elwood and St Kilda areas. Bailey was apparently working as a pastry chef around this time, So these guys, like bakers, often work graveyard shift type hours. So all the baked goodies are ready for sale the next morning. But Bailey used these early morning hours to pick up sex workers when all was quiet and committed heinous acts of sexual violence against them. His MO was to take them to this secluded U-shaped alleyway off Kendall Street in Elwood and he'd park with the passenger door extremely close to the wall of the laneway so it couldn't be opened. He'd lock the doors and tell the woman that no one would be around this area and no one would hear them scream. So this is really sickening stuff here, stuff of nightmares. So Bailey had clearly refined his MO and targeted a specific victim type this time around, being sex workers, who he probably thought were less likely to go to the police and even if they did, were less likely to be taken seriously. But that didn't happen. 16 of these women did go to the police and reported the attacks And this led to two detectives setting up a sting after hearing the stories from these women about how violent and threatening this guy was. Through this operation with forensic examinations, they were able to make a clear link to Bailey. When they showed up at his house, Dandenong North was where he was living at this time, he was shocked. I think he thought he'd beaten detection this time, but he hadn't. His partner was there when he was arrested and his DNA was taken which left no doubt about his connection to these series of attacks. But his partner stood by him throughout this, probably because he'd fathered her children. But it was also alleged that he was violent towards her as well at various times throughout their relationship. Bailey would follow his usual path of denial, conceding only that he'd had to seek out prostitutes essentially because he wasn't getting any at home. So he had to get it somewhere. That was his reasoning and his deflection in blaming his partner for something that he'd done. All in all, Bailey would be charged with 43 offences, including rape, 
threats to kill and false imprisonment. He'd be bailed out after this on just $5,000 and he'd eventually plead guilty five months later on trial, probably in a last-minute feign of remorsefulness to get a lesser sentence. Only five out of the 16 women he'd attacked testified against him, probably out of fear. Bailey said to the judge that he hadn't taken the sex offender rehabilitation seriously the last time he was locked up. He just said what he had to get by and to get out, essentially. He was psychologically assessed as a borderline personality, an antisocial type. And while the judge declared him a danger to society, Bailey would get only 11 years with a minimum of eight for these string of offences, and he'd serve less than the minimum yet again. How that works, I'm not sure. And you have to ask, and many people did, how was this guy let out again after raping another 16 women? But if that wasn't bad enough, Bailey's release in 2010 would be a cock-up of epic proportions. He was released on standard supervision terms, and his DNA was lost off file. Usually, sex offenders like this have a stringent protocol of reporting and high levels of supervision when released. Not on this occasion, though. The police who conducted the sting and put him away weren't even notified when he was released, which is, once again, standard procedure for offenders like Bailey. His release and the way it was handled was also against the judge's advice, too. But however it happened, Bailey was out, and he was living in Coburg now, in this little hovel for downtrodden types down on their luck. He'd pick himself up a girlfriend, too, actually, fairly quickly. One would end up figuring him out pretty quickly, though, and ditch him, while the other ended up moving into a flat in Coburg with him. His veneer wouldn't stand up for long. In 2012, he punched a guy in the face at the front of a pub in Geelong, breaking the guy's jaw. Bailey wouldn't remember any of this, or so he'd go on to say in court anyway. He'd only get three months for this attack, which he'd appeal, alleging this sentence was too severe. And somehow, his parole conditions weren't affected by this new charge. At this time, Bailey had started to frequent a strip club in Brunswick called Maxine's and he'd have a regular dancer there, a favourite of his. It was said this woman closely resembled Jill Ma in outward appearance, interestingly. Bailey would get kicked out of Maxine's a few times for stepping over a line with his behaviour, but this regular dancer of his would say later that she was genuinely scared when Bailey told her about his rough sex fantasies of strangling women. And this takes us through to Friday the 21st of September 2012, the night of Jill Ma's disappearance. What was Adrian Bailey doing that night? Well, that was the big question that police wanted to ask. After the dog surveillance concluded, police searched Bailey's Bud Street apartment in Coburg. He wasn't there when they did this, but his girlfriend was. They showed her a still from the CCTV, the blue hoodie guy, and they turned the place over seizing personal items, including a shovel with dirt on it, bits of a smashed mobile phone, and his girlfriend even handed over a beaten-up SIM card she'd found in the wash, which had apparently come out of Bailey's pants. Bailey came home from work after being told the place was being searched, and he was taken into custody right after this. Police observed a bruise on his nose, which he'd told his girlfriend he got in a punch on the previous Friday night. At the police's St Kilda Road complex... Detective Paul Rowe is assigned to conduct the interview. Rowe was a very calm detective, a very non-confrontational sort, and he'd make you feel at ease. 
It wasn't a bustling, overwhelming sort. So this was a smart approach, leaving him to do the interview. Rose started out with some casual routine conversation, stuff about the football, and then he asked about Jill's disappearance and if Bailey was involved. I was given the job to do the interview um, for a number of reasons. I'd been out in Brunswick for pretty much three days straight and I had a, a good knowledge of, of the CCTV and, and Jill's movements and her interaction with, with Bailey. I'd spoken to Tom, so I knew the circumstances surrounding her disappearance. And based on those couple of things, I had a fairly strong view um, as to how I thought the interview should, should play out. And so the decision was made, we discussed it as a crew, um, and the decision was made that I'd do it. Ultimately, in a job like this, everyone has a role. Um, that was my role, and everyone's role um, is assisted by the others around them. Bailey denied any involvement, but wanted to help in any way that he could. He was a very confident person, quite relaxed and comfortable, and at this stage, he was under the impression this questioning wasn't targeting him specifically, but more generally just noted sex offenders in the surrounding area. And obviously he was one of those, despite his crafty surname change. The police knew who he was. Detective Rowe asked Bailey to give him a play-by-play of what he did on the night of Friday the 21st, you know, so he could eliminate him from the inquiry. And Bailey told his story, blissfully unaware of what evidence the police had in the background they were preparing to drip feed. Bailey went to the Quiet Man Hotel that evening for a work function. He worked for a plumbing and drainage and civil construction business, who we won't name because they're still in operation and don't need Bailey's name tainting their business. But he had a few beers at this pub with workmates while wearing a light grey shirt, jeans and these hideous white toe-tapper shoes that were never in fashion ever. Maybe for one day in Milan, like 20 years ago. He was seen downing a pot of beer quickly before swaggering out of the venue around 10pm. And he was really getting his head wobble on by this point, Bailey. A real strut about him. And we've all known a guy like this after a few beers. He gets the head wobble going, a pair of invisible buckets under each arm, all head and shoulders, this douchebag. He looks a bit like Damien Lewis, Chloe. You know him? from Homeland and Billions? Yeah, he does. (laughs) He looks like that guy. Bailey's a poor man's Damien Lewis. Anyway, that's Damien Lewis is probably a very nice man, but it's just for a... uh, Aesthetic. Exactly, yeah. So you (laughs) Reference. Anyway, so the police confirmed this part of the story with corroborating CCTV. So he and his girlfriend head to lounge bar on Swanson Street for a while after, and they have a big argument. She leaves under the pretense of going to the bathroom but Bailey eventually cottons onto this. And CCTV shows him thundering around the bar, wobbling his head as you said, Sean, throwing his arms around while trying to call her mobile furiously. He eventually leaves too, gets in a cab back to their place in Coburg. His girlfriend had been and gone and didn't want to deal with him. So Bailey pulls on a blue hoodie and leaves, apparently heading back to the lounge bar to see if he could find his girlfriend. So Detective Rose letting him talk, letting him explain... And he's not really dropping any bombs just yet. He's just chatting with him. And Bailey's rolling along, thinking this was all just a matter of routine. But Bailey's story starts to get a few holes. Because Roe lets him know that they knew he'd been on Sydney Road. They had CCTV of him on Sydney Road. He was the guy in the blue hoodie. Bailey counters this with a tale about the cab driver booting him out because he was too drunk. And that's how he ended up there. 
and he went home after that. Detective Rowe is taking all of this in and still building a rapport with Bailey, putting his emotions aside, almost trying to sound empathetic to Bailey's story about the fight with his girlfriend, etc. And he's asking closed questions followed by open questions. What car? What bar did you go to? Tell me more about that. Explain this for me, etc. Very clever. And with the little things that weren't adding up, when Roe asked Bailey to explain something, his go-to line was, I can't explain it, like it was some inexplicable coincidence what he was putting forward. Bailey had just finished telling Roe that he didn't go anywhere else that night, so Roe showed him a photo of his car at Moreland Road. Can you explain that, Adrian? Can't explain it, Bailey said. Then Detective Rowe dropped some knowledge about mobile phone pings. Now, we know what Jill's phone had been doing in the wee hours of Saturday after she'd last been seen, but the police had tracked Bailey's phone by this time too, and it mirrored Jill's. 1.30am, his phone was in Sydney Road, 4.30am on the Tullamarine Freeway, 5am Sunbury, and 6am Gisborne South. They'd tracked both phones out and only one back in, Bailey's. Can't explain it, he says again. Bailey's confidence begins to shake when police start presenting facts that were showing he was lying. His demeanour changed, even his complexion changed, and Roe could see he was rattled. He became angry when he realised he hadn't convinced the police he wasn't involved in this, like he thought they'd buy it. Roe asks if there'd be anything of Jill Mars at his house. Any reason why that might be? No, Bailey said. But the police had already found a SIM card at Bailey's residence, if we recall from before, and one of their analysts had confirmed with Vodafone that it was indeed registered to Jill. When Detective Rowe told Bailey about the SIM card, the interview dynamics altered drastically. The curtain came down for Adrian Bailey, and he completely clammed up, went into a sort of angry silence, and now his go-to line had changed from, I can't explain it, to... I don't want to explain it. Detective Rowe persisted, but it was diminishing returns at this point. Bailey was too angry. So he took a breather, spoke with Detective Butler, and they rang Detective Idles back for a chat. Idles had been listening to the entire interview over the phone, by the way, so he wasn't just chiming in here. He knew where things were at. Shortly after this, Bailey buzzed for Detective Rowe to come back in. And it turned out... Detective Rowe had broken Adrian Bailey after six long hours. Bailey confessed in a broad manner at first, said he wanted to get it off his chest. He said, I fucked up, alright? And went on about himself after this why the world was against him, like he was the victim. Detective Rose sat and listened to the story as Bailey tried to paint this picture of him being a saviour and Jill being a distressed woman. Bailey had said generally that he was responsible, that he'd done it, but they still didn't know exactly what had happened. He eventually broke down and cried and said he'd seen Jill, tried to talk to her as she seemed distressed, but she ended up telling him to fuck off, so he got angry then dragged her into the alleyway off Hope Street and raped and strangled her. He left her body, went home, changed again into a tan hoodie and grey beanie and then went back to the laneway. 
put Jill's body in the boot along with her torn clothes and mobile phone and drove out to Black Hill Road, Gisborne South. There, he buried Jill and then ran out of fuel, so he flagged down a local after this to take him to the service station to get some petrol. The police would corroborate this with a CCTV from the servo and a statement from this local guy. Shortly after this, on his way home, Bailey started to call a workmate, probably trying to line up an alibi, which makes sense when you piece together with what he told the landlady at 6.30am when he arrived home, with Bailey telling her he'd been out to check a busted pipe. He spent the rest of the day with his girlfriend trying to make amends with her until late Sunday night when he'd clean his car inside and out, which he'd do again the next day, calling in sick to work so he could take his car to a service centre where he'd get four new tyres fitted and a new boot mat, all before getting a roadworthy so he could transfer the car into his girlfriend's name. Bailey confessed to some of this in detail, but the police also pieced many of these things together both during and after the main investigation. Bailey said he'd take the police to Jill's body and so the detectives and accompanying forensic teams went out to Gisborne South with him. Detective Butler was getting pissed with Bailey because he had them driving around in circles, not engaging with them, but eventually he broke down crying again and pointed them to a spot when they were near it. But Bailey wouldn't get out of the car. He was basically shilling up at this point. Detectives located an area of recently disturbed grass... There, they found Jill Ma's body, buried in a shallow grave, barely big enough for her body and only a foot deep. The autopsy revealed a brutal rape and beating, manual strangulation, a fractured larynx from sustained and consistent pressure and significant bruising and lacerations on her head, face and jaw. It took six days to catch Bailey, six hours to get him to confess and six minutes for a magistrate to remand him. Bailey was charged with rape and murder at about 2am on the 28th of September and followed by an out-of-sessions hearing at 3am that lasted for about 90 seconds, he was held on remand to await trial. While in custody, he attempted suicide. Pretty poorly, I might add. I think he cut himself with a lid off a tin can or something. Another guy in Coburg listed as A. Bailey. I think his name was Andrew, perhaps. But this guy would get a lot of heat with calls from the media at home and abroad and people rolling up at the house. It was obviously the wrong guy and this harassment stopped pretty quickly following a plea from this guy to leave him be. Not a huge point, but it goes to show how much this crime impacted the public. Jill's family would get to lay her to rest a couple of weeks later, holding two services in both Melbourne and in Ireland. 30,000 people would attend a peace march down Sydney Road in Brunswick in honour of Jill and vigils with flowers would pop up across the city at locations connected with her. There was a painting honouring Jill done in Hosier Lane that would later be painted over by other street art, and there was a memorial daffodil bed painted on the outskirts of Drogheda and a rooftop garden planted on the ABC radio in Jill's honour. But the media storm would only get bigger after this, with a growing angry focus on Bailey and his history. The courts would put suppression orders in place to stop the media reporting on Bailey's history as to not prejudice the appending trial, but not all of the media would honour this. There'd be many breaches of these suppression orders. One glaring one was the publishing of a book entitled Evil in a Blue Hoodie by Joseph John, which would be published and then removed from publication almost instantly. So only a few rare copies of this book exist. 
We were lucky enough to borrow a copy from our Goodreads friend, Nikki Kendall, to assist in research for this episode. So a big thanks to Nikki for generously lending her copy of this rare book to us. Yes, thank you, Nikki. Darren Hinch published information about Bailey that his parents wanted him out of their house due to his violent past and nature towards women. And that was how he wound up in Coburg. Hinch, being a polarising media figure, was charged with contempt of court. I think he got a short sentence for this, maybe a couple of months. Hinch had been jailed previously for naming a couple of pedophiles. And interestingly, when Hinch served a short stint in jail for this, he was actually only a few cells away from Adrian Bailey. Hinch was also in close proximity to a guy dubbed the Hot Chocolate Rapist at 1.2, which he said was one of the scariest moments. We plan to talk about the Hot Chocolate Rapist in our next Patreon episode. There's a lot of information around Bailey's trial, and there was constant and consistent outcry from the media and the public in the lead up to this, and rightly so. But I think a lot of it is legalese, Chloe, and in the context of what happened to Jill and her family and what changed, it's not that important to discuss, so we won't labour over Bailey's trial details. He was convicted and sentenced to life with a minimum of 35 years, and I think this minimum was set due to Bailey changing his plea to guilty, so that had to be considered. But importantly, sweeping reforms to the parole system came along after this, A report by former Justice Ian Callanan in 2013 would highlight parole board employees were overworked, there was a need for oversight and that parole wasn't a given, prisoners had to make applications for it and earn it. He also recommended that breaking bail became an offence because on its own it wasn't at that point. So these changes did take effect and Bailey would lodge appeals between then and now with respect to the severity of his sentence. In 2015, the DNA system used by Victoria Police came under fire. In particular, the reason why Bailey's DNA was not on the database, as it had been obtained for sexual assaults earlier in 2001. Now we're going to play a clip of Jill's father here. This is his statement after Bailey's sentencing. Jill lived a life full of family, friends and her beloved Tom. Jill was brutally raped and murdered and is never coming back. Justice has now been done. Police and prosecutors, we thank you. We wanted everyone to hear George's voice because we're going to read his victim impact statement shortly. I think this was just to the point and really... The guy's lost his only daughter. There's no recovering from that. And you may or may not hear it there in the audio, um, but watching this, I just had to play it because it's a broken man just leading his family out of the depths of the most tragic thing they could go through. And while that sentencing might be justice served, as George said, nothing will ever bring Jill back. Tom has gone on to advocate for the prevention of violence against women for many organisations in the years since Jill's tragic death. And the police really struggled with how they treated Tom early in this case. They had to go about it that way and Tom knew that and he was cooperative and respectful in the process the whole time. But it left the investigators with a horrible feeling for how they had to treat Tom initially. Detective Dave Butler really struggled after this case for some time before returning to work 
And Detective Paul Rowe, the man who cracked Adrian Bailey, he eventually left the Homicide Squad not long after this, still with Victoria Police, but in another detective unit, as I understand. But two crew members from the police forensics never came back to work after this case, which I think really highlights the toll. We're going to read victim impact statements from Jill's father and Tom Ma now. Sir, I am George McCune, the father of Jill Ma. Normally we call her Jillian. These items are only some of the items that will fill my mind for the rest of my life. And at the outset, it is hard to say, but it is just not okay to rape and murder my child. That is an absolute. I am only 55 years of age, my mother is 82, and my daughter is dead. In September 2012, I had a stroke and Gillian came over because I had the stroke and to help me get through it and extracted a promise from me that I would live and the reason she wanted me to live, which she said quite smartly, was she wanted her children to have a young granddad to run around with. She loved life. What happened? She walked. What was outlined to the court happened and she died. It was a brutal ending to her life and something that will live with me for the rest of my life. I will never see my daughter bearing and rearing her children. I have no other daughters. My wife of 30 years will never be a maternal grandmother, a distinction between a mother's bond with the child and the children's. So she'll never be. That maternal line has ended. We often, that is my wife and I in particular, we live in a lovely place in Western Australia We actually live opposite a park on the river where daily there is young mothers with their children. Every young child, small baby less than three months old, they just remind me of Gillian and they remind me of what would have been, that by now Gillian would be three to four months pregnant, we would be engrossed in the life of the babies coming along and yet this, and she would have had children, presumably more than one. This is a victim impact statement So this is an impact on my wife and I. This is a life we will just never have. We can't have it. We can't have any more children. Thank you. I'll now read Thomas Marr's victim statement. I was introduced to Jill in November 2001 by our mutual friend Kira. It was an awkward first encounter. I remember I couldn't shake her hand because it was bandaged up. She had injured it the previous day in a characteristically clumsy fashion. But this inelegant introduction began an 11-year adventure with the most wonderful person I have ever met. Jill embodied everything I could ever ask for in a partner. Her sense of fun and adventure and her unquenchable lust for life pulled me through difficult times and lifted me even higher in good times. Now, as I go through the worst time in my life... The person whose passion, intelligence and strength got me through before is no longer there to help me with this struggle. What was stolen from me on the 22nd of September 2012 was love, my best friend and my entire world. What was stolen from us was our future, the possibility of a family and our lives together. What has been given to me is a lifetime of fear, insomnia, unending panic attacks anger that I never wanted or asked for, and first-hand knowledge of how deeply depraved and disgusting a human being can be. My worldview has been significantly altered, and my belief in the good of humanity has been shaken to its core. 
I hesitate to leave my apartment because of the feverish prospect of an anxiety attack that can pounce on the most inappropriate times. Nightmarish and intrusive visions are constant and I don't escape this in sleeping or waking hours. I've been forced to move from our home in Brunswick given its proximity to where Jill's death occurred and I'm constantly confused, disoriented and unfocused. The pain of not being able to tell Jill that I loved her in her final moments, the knowledge that those last moments were terrifying and painful and the knowledge that with her final walk she had crossed paths with evil haunts me every day. The initial stages of the police investigation necessitated a thorough examination of our apartment, our car and our private possessions, which was intrusive and extraordinarily uncomfortable. This was soon followed by unwelcome messages from members of the public who convinced themselves that I was involved in Jill's disappearance. This has exacerbated feelings of horror and a lack of faith in the decency of humanity. The frequency of media intrusion has ebbed and flowed, but has never stopped completely. I've been away from work for substantial periods of time. I have ongoing counselling for trauma and grief, and quite simply, my life will never be normal again. Most of all, I miss Jill. I miss waking up late on Sunday and having breakfast at 2pm. I miss boozy afternoons in the sunshine, making plans laughing with her and sharing my life with her. I miss her insight, fun and wit, her huge smile and infectious personality. I think of her every second of every day and I think of the pain of never being able to laugh with her again. I think the waste of a brilliant mind and a beautiful soul at the hands of a grotesque and soulless human being. I think of how in love we were and of how much I've lost and how much my life and dreams were built around Jill. I'm half a person because of this crime. So those were pretty heavy, but I think they share more of the grief this family endured and really humanised Jill, showing us just how much she meant to so many, but her family in particular, more so than a play-by-play of Bailey's trial. But speaking of Bailey, in more recent times, in 2014 he was stabbed with a fork in prison. I'm not sure who did this to him, but they, like Bailey, didn't really choose the correct implement for this attack. So you got Bailey using tin cans to try and open himself up, and whoever stabbed him using a fork. I think there's some cutlery education to be had in there. And shortly after this, the suppression orders preventing media reporting on Bailey's history was lifted, and so stories of his sordid past began to surface with frequency. Subsequently, these stories started to ring bells with some other women a lady would come forward after seeing Bailey on a Facebook page and she'd alleged that he'd attacked her back in the year 2000. This woman was a sex worker. She was also a heroin addict. She said that there was a pamphlet being passed around between others in her trade at the time that contained information about violent crimes in the area with an emphasis on bad clientele that some of the women had encountered. She stated that soon after this, a car pulled up requesting her services and she got in with the man. She mentioned to him these bad people and violent crimes in the area. The guy responded that he was one of those bad guys and he punched her in the head, then drove her to a secluded lane, parking next to a fence so she couldn't get out. Then he raped her. 
But he wasn't done humiliating and harming this woman. The man then put his hand into her mouth, shoving it down her throat. She couldn't breathe, but she escaped and flagged down a car. But when she told her boyfriend about the incident, he called her a slut and slapped her. Bailey denied this allegation, but was charged. Another woman also came forward, alleging a similar story, that Bailey had picked her up, taken her to a secluded lane and raped her. He told her he took steroids and went to a gym in Preston. But this woman kicked in his windscreen and went to the police armed with box cutters, wanting to know who'd attacked her. Her knowledge of his tattoos and the gym info wasn't widely publicised information at this time, so these details really added weight to this woman's story. But Bailey's depravity and victim type morphed. As we know, when he saw a 27-year-old backpacker from Holland walking home from the pub, he pulled up alongside her, said he'd seen her hobbling along and had seen another car following her, so offered her a lift. Typical Bailey knight in shining armour bullshit. She thought this was kind and got into the car feeling safe, but he took her to a nearby alleyway and raped her and took her passport too. He asked her over and over again if she'd go to the police. She said no, she wouldn't. She convinced him to take her home and she'd have him inside for a drink, but when they arrived, she fled and screamed. CCTV showed him in the area and the woman's housemates positively identified him. So in 2014, Bailey was tried and convicted for three more counts of rape, two assaults, threats to kill and false imprisonment. His sentence was increased to a minimum term of 43 years, but Bailey would continue to appeal in his typical style, and one of these convictions would be quashed, which reduced his sentence to a non-parole period of 40 years. He'll be eligible for parole in 2055, which would make him 84, so hopefully he's popped enough steroids to induce some sort of cardiac arrest before then. Police believed Bailey would have become a serial killer, and they did a fine job, more than once, taking him off the streets. But unfortunately... None of that brings Jill Ma back to her family. Yeah, that's right. And I think this crime really changed things for people of my age in Melbourne. I remember vividly when it happened. And I think Jill was close enough to the age of people around me, at least in my life, that for the first time people felt like the world was dangerous or I was having conversations with people where they were wondering whether or not they should have walked home by themselves or done that thing alone or gone to that place solo. Um, It's such a shocking shame that anyone has to be cautious when walking down the street anywhere. This crime was devastating and committed by someone, as we said, who shouldn't have been in the community. Jill's husband posted a tribute to her on social media in 2018 on what would have been their 10th wedding anniversary. I read about it in an article published in The Age. The way he finished the post seems like such a nice way to remember Jill and he said some really beautiful words. He said, Slant to Jill, you were a warrior for love, life and liberation. Thank you for consistently and persistently teaching me how to live, how to think, how to embrace love wholly and how to bear witness to the fire you lit in me and so many others in your short time on this earth. You are loved at every moment of every day. Yeah, nice words. But the depths of Adrian Bailey's sick, sadistic and brutal criminal history are out there now for the world to see, and he's no victim, no doubt about that. This guy was a callous, twisted, 
violent sadist, fueled by a deep-seated contempt and hatred for women, which he amplified with alcohol and steroids, in my belief. But he would have ended up in this same position without those factors, too. Jill shouldn't be remembered for what happened to her, but for who she was. She was an absolute beacon, this woman, a stunningly beautiful soul, with an infectious smile and zest for life. And this asshole took her from her husband, from her family and her friends, her colleagues, and this impacted Australian and Irish communities in a big way. And it's a shame that something like this had to happen before the parole process was reviewed. I think everyone felt like they knew Jill, and she was even regularly referred to endearingly as our Jill. It was just horrific what happened to her, and I'm still so sorry to her family for what happened. I hope they've been able to move on with life to some extent and have some good support around them, but I mean, having your daughter raped and murdered is just something that will never go away. As for Bailey, well, he shouldn't be remembered at all, but if he is, it should be for what he did, and for being stabbed with a fork, I think, like a little Frankfurt, old shrunken balls Bailey, the piece of shit. <laughs> I think our thoughts on Bailey are clear. <laughs> um, let's um, move on to a happy thought after that. I think um, hopefully we did Jill's story justice. And um, Sean, do you have a happy thought? I do. I'm happily, I'll happily discuss it too after Adrian Bailey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we've already covered how much I love public transport at the start of the episode. <laughs> But the uh, the new job is going well. Uh, I'm looking forward to the flexibility that working from home will provide in due course, which you're familiar with, Chloe, mm. and home too. Um, that'll be in the next couple of months. So it'll be great some, uh, spending some more time with uh, with all of my girls at home. Yeah, how exciting. Yeah. Um, my happy thought, I actually have two. So one is that I got a new really little tattoo that I just love and the happy thought isn't so much the tattoo but that – the tattoo artist that I go to, this um, woman called Olivia, is just the best and I love seeing her. Um, she's the brightest, most bubbly, lovely person and I might be partially booking tattoos just so I can see her because I really want to be <laughs> friends with her. But it was so good to go in there and see her and just one of those people, a sunshine person that you leave just feeling really good about yourself and happy afterwards. Um, and my other happy thought is that... <laughs> It's more worth a chat. You know how I'm really into it, but <laughs> it's getting really cold and it makes me so happy. I'm one of those people that as soon as it starts raining and gets cold, I just feel calm and relaxed and happy. So I'm sorry for everyone really hitting into the seasonal affective disorder season now, <laughs> but I'm living the life. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. I like the rain. So very calming. Mm, exactly. Um, and then quickly, just to cover off our emails and socials, don't forget that you can get in touch with us with any questions, feedback, comments that you have. Our email address is truebluecrime at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is True Blue True Crime dash podcast on Facebook. And our Instagram handle is True Blue Crime. And we're posting links to episodes on there as well as little insights. So, you know, the book that Sean found or some of our equipment. Um, if anyone's tech nerdy, you might be interested in that. We appreciate your listening. Thank you very much. And we will be uh, back with you next week with another case on True Blue True Crime. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs>
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.